Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Fathers, we head into this teaching. I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. I pray, as was prayed recently, Father, that the weight of your glory would press out and push against the oppression of the enemy, and that we would be able to fully hear and comprehend what you are saying to us, that we would, Father, not be ignorant in these times, but people who are sober and alert and armed for battle and able to fight the good fight, as Paul called it. I pray that you'll bless the teaching of your word this morning and give us revelation and insight to your will in each of our lives and in the life of this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody here question whether or not we're at war? In the past two weeks alone, that is the last two weeks of May, from Manchester to Minya, Egypt, to Kabul, to Baghdad, and now, you know yesterday, to London. 186 people have been killed. Over 500 have been wounded. In the London attacks alone, nearly 50 people are in hospitals right now, 21 critically, 7 dead. And this is from this ongoing terror from from a religion, and I will just honestly and boldly say a religion that at its heart is not peaceful. It is not. If you have read the Koran, you would know this. But we live in ignorant times with an ignorant world that doesn't want to face the truth. Here's the thing. What I see going on is the spiritual war spilling into the natural world. And we've seen this more since September 11th. We have seen more in the last 16 years than any time in the previous half century. You would have to go back to World War II to find this kind of of warfare taking place. The world engulfed in warfare. And, And what's amazing is that the warfare we're engulfed in now is in the public square. It's in civilian life. It's people sitting in a cafe. It's others walking across a bridge. Vans and vehicles plowing into groups of people, all in the name of a false god. Are we at war or are we not? I believe that what we are witnessing is a vivid precursor to an eventual total satanic meltdown. And it's described in the Bible. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 12 says, Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has a short time. Now, that happens, if you study Revelation, that happens at about the midpoint of the tribulation. Where Satan's uh, visa, his access to heaven, which he has currently, is completely revoked. And he is driven out 100%. This is after the ambassadors to Christ have been caught up. Okay, called out. And after his access is revoked, and he will lose it. Because at that point... It will finally occur to Satan completely that he is out of time. And so it says he has great wrath knowing he has a short time. But already these signals of satanic overplay are showing. And we see this in the world around us. And again, many don't want to think about it. Many don't want to look at it or consider the reality that we are at war. You might say, I go into my home, I close the door, I'm not at war with Islam or any other religion. I even have a sticker on the back of my car that says it's cool to coexist. We're all together, let's just be happy and and just ignore the realities of a few, what they like to call extremists. Gang, the extremists are just people who are acting on their faith. I'm an extremist Christian, maybe you didn't know that. I am. I am extremely filled with the grace of God. I am extremely convinced that His love will conquer all things. It's a love that comes by the grace of God. It's a love that was hard fought at Calvary. I'm getting ahead of myself. I think Satan already has a sense that his time is short. I think that's why we're seeing an uptick in all of these things. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. The Haversack M1928 was the most widely used carrier pack in World War II. Khaki and olive drab in color, it was designed to carry all the essentials of a soldier in the field, but according to olivedrab.com, where do we find these things? <laughs> to assemble and put one on was a, apparently a very complex process. Difficult to do in the field, it had multiple steps, straps, and ways to go wrong. The haversack and its pack carrier had to be assembled using a coupling strap threaded through buttonholes, then suspender hooks were attached to a pistol or cartridge belt, then the shelter half, blanket, poles, and pegs were rolled up in a specified way with clothing inside the folds. Rations and toilet articles were packed into the haversack, which was folded over and strapped, after which the shelter roll was buckled into the pack carrier with three binding straps, then closed with more straps. Provisions were made for an overcoat and raincoat to be added to the pack when needed. Other equipment such as the bayonet and trenching tool and helmet also had specified attachment points. But for all its cumbersome hassle, you did not go into battle without your haversack. The Lord has issued every one of us a holy haversack. We have armaments for battle. Not difficult and burdensome as the Haversack 1928 was, but easy and light to carry. In fact, you may recall Jesus saying in Matthew 11:29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The full armor of the Lord is not intended to weigh you down and oppress you, but to lift you up and strengthen you. 
Therefore, take up the full armor of God. What's the therefore, therefore? Let's back it up a little bit. Look at verse 10. Finally, Paul says, and that finally is at the conclusion of the entire letter. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter... No. Um, The finally is summing up now. We have been through the heights of the heavenlies. We have seen the walk of the made worthy. We now come to the fight of the faithful in this remarkable letter of Paul. And he says all that he says and comes to this end point and says, Finally, understanding where we're going and what we're doing and and what this is all about. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The strength of His might. His might is what's innate. It's what's inherently God. His strength is that might in operation. So what Paul is saying here is the dynamic operation of His inherent power. God's might in play. Be strong in that. Be strong in the Lord. In verse 11 he says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. And I pointed out Wednesday night, this is the last time Paul will use the word eparaniois, heavenlies, in the book. And he says that there are these world forces, these powers, these principalities, in the heavenlies. And we are fighting against them. We are battling them. We are engaged in an epic fight. I was going to say eternal, but it does have an end point. It will be over. But we are involved in it right now. The full armor. It's a word that may be familiar to you, at least familiar to an English word that we have. The word full armor is panoplia. The full panoplia. The full panoply, if you will. The full array of the armor of God. And panoplia is used in three places in the Bible. It's used twice here by Paul in verse 11 and then in verse 13. It's also used over in Luke chapter 11. Why don't you turn there with me for a moment. Luke chapter 11. Jesus has just been blasphemed by the Pharisees. He had cast out a mute demon and the Pharisees come after him and Jesus is responding to them and he says watch this Luke 11 verse Luke 11:21 He says when the strong man fully armed guards his own house his possessions are undisturbed but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him he takes away from him all his armor There's Panoplia right there. All his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. And then Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. The strong man. Strong man is the devil. Jesus is referring directly to Satan. The someone stronger than the strong man is Jesus himself. Now how do we know that? We know that from verse 20. I love this. In fact, you might want to underline this in your Bibles. This is a profoundly powerful statement by Jesus. He says, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Whoa. The finger of God. 
I was privileged to be at, uh, at Scott Coonan's change of command ceremony on Thursday. He's like, oh, you're not going to talk about that, are you, Rick? Yes, I am. It was, it was awesome. You know, we came into the Hangar 6, and the flag alone was impressive. My goodness, huge American flag hanging up there. And, and it was a change of command. Now, Scott is in command. And, and I, I mean, I came in there. I've got my jeans and my, you know, zip-up hoodie on. And people are like, Les is in a suit. I'm like, oh, man. Senior pastor is outdone again. And we sit down and we go through this ceremony, which was just, I, I, I'm so impressed. I love how the Navy does things. And, and it was really a special time, really very moving. And as I, as I watched this, toward the end, part of the ceremony was, is this the last of the, of the P3s? Is that right? It was parked there just to the left of the flag, the nose of the plane sticking out. And the previous commander's name was there, and they took that name off, and there was Commander Scott Coonan's name. He's got his name on an airplane. <laughs> I have my name right here on my Bible. And I thought, that's awesome. And what a, what a, what a sense of, and Scott's a humble guy. So this is, this, I'm not saying this about him, but man, what a sense of power to have your name on a plane going into battle. Wow. All the might of God is in his finger. Scott's got an airplane. Jesus just had his finger. The finger of God, the power of God, touching lives, changing lives. You know what's beautiful about a finger? A finger can be both tender and sensitive as well as direct. And Jesus is direct and sensitive in our lives, in your life. He can touch you with the power of God. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is profound. Jesus is pointing to his ability to cast out demons as an indication that Satan, the strong man, was already in disarray. He's already coming undone. And then you know Satan was terminally weakened at the cross. When Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him, Colossians 2.15. Weakened, disarmed, and finally the plundered strong man will be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 tells us. Until then... Take up the full armor of God. The full armor. And by the way, note that. You can go back to Ephesians 6 now. It's not your armor. It's the full armor of God. It's His armor. It's not my armor. It's not a pastor's armor or an elder's armor or a parent's armor. It is the full armor of God. Now, 17-year-old David was preparing to fight Goliath. You may be familiar with the story. All of Israel was shaken in their sandals, afraid to go up against this giant of a Philistine. David comes out to bring provisions to his brothers, and he sees everybody shrinking back and says, What's the deal? I'll fight him. I love David. I'll take him on. So they bring David in before Saul. You may know the story. 1 Samuel 17.38 tells us Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk. 
for he had not tested them. And so David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them, and David took them off. Now, it's always been thought that the issue was that Saul's armor was too big for David. But the Bible doesn't say that. It's it's possible that it just was too big and bulky and, and he couldn't move around in it. But that's not what concerned David. What David says, note this, is that the armor was untested. It was unproven. It was someone else's. And so for David, even if it fit perfectly, it would be unfamiliar. He hadn't used it before. He didn't know how to use it. And it strikes me that it's never a good idea to go into battle with someone else's armor. And yet people do it all the time. There are those who have been going to church all their lives because that's how they were raised. Well, you're wearing your parents' armor. Have you tested it? So often the armor is untested and therefore unuseful, unproven, unfamiliar. How many of us have done that? Worn untested armor or tried to stand? People in the world today stand on unproven theories. Untested beliefs. The full armor of God is tested, it's tried, and it's true. The full armor of God has been taken all the way to the cross, my friends. The full armor of God has seen battle, knows battle. What are you talking about, Rick? Turn one more place here in the Scriptures, back to the middle of your Bibles, Isaiah 59. Isaiah chapter 59, and verse 15. We see a break here midway through the verse. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. You catch up. You need to see this with your own eyes. Isaiah 59, verse 15. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in His sight, that there was no justice. And He saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then His own arm brought salvation to Him. Speaking of Messiah. And his righteousness upheld him. Watch this. He put on righteousness like a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Note this. Paul is clearly inspired to draw off of Isaiah as he begins to talk about the full armor of God. And that panoply, that full array of God's armor described here, has already been worn by God, therefore tested, therefore proven, therefore tried. But listen, if Christ is in you, His armor is a perfect fit. You can wear it because He is in you. You can wield the implements of warfare because Christ is in you and we fight by the strength of His might. Now go back to Ephesians 6. There are at least seven aspects, possibly eight, of this holy haversack, of the full array, the panoply of God. The first three, you will note, are to be put on. That is worn. Don't leave home without them. The last three plus are to be taken up. That is utilized in battle. Let's walk them through. Verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. So number one, the belt of truth. 
the belt of truth. Paul may have had in mind that Roman leather apron. They have those overlapping flaps of leather that would hang down literally below the breastplate, below the other armor of the Roman soldier. But to gird up the loins, as is said here in the chapter, it it predates Rome. In fact, to gird up the loins is a a phrase, first time, at least I could find it, was 4,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago, when the Lord says to Job, Job 38, verse 3, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. In other words, Job, we about to get into a fight, little bro. Gird up your loins. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 46 tells us the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel, which is an amazing feat. No pun intended. Feet. He's running. He's running. It's amazing. Feet. You know, his feet were running. Okay. To gird up the loins, what does that mean? It meant that when there, a belt was worn, and it could be anything from a material belt to a leather belt, any kind of belt, but when it was worn and you were wearing robes, to gird up the loins meant to grab the, lo- the robes from behind, bring them up around, and tuck them into the belt, thus creating kind of uh, shorts. And then you could run or you could move about freely. You, you could you gird up the loins meant movement. It meant speed. It meant effectiveness when you needed to move Fast, But to gird up your loins ultimately became a euphemism for readiness. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 17. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them. Now Jeremiah wasn't about to run, but he was about to enter the fray. He was about to fight the good fight on behalf of the Lord. He was going to stand in the midst of his own people who were denying what was about to happen. And that was the downfall of Jerusalem. So he had to be ready, had to be prepared. Gird up your loins, Jeremiah. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think Peter is tapping into exactly what Paul is saying here. The idea of girding up your loins with the truth. Putting on the belt of truth. Girding up the loins of your mind, Peter says. The belt that girds the loins is truth. Truth makes us ready. Truth helps us face the deceit and the lies of the philosophies and the sociologies of the world in which we live. I ran across an article I found interesting the other day from philosophynow.com. I found that right after I found olivedrab.com. And the article was entitled, Postmodernism is Dead. Postmodernism is Dead. And then it went on to state that it's been replaced by post-postmodernism, which I think is brilliant. Or metamodernism, or what this author called pseudo-modernism. We have now shifted again, and, and it's happening consistently, generation to generation, and even in the midst of generations. Philosophies and, and, and thoughts about how people think and study and read and behave, it's always changing. It's hard to keep track of. Well, Alan Kirby in Philosophy Now writes, Postmodernism conceived in contemporary culture as a spectacle before which the individual sat powerless. I.e., 
television and the cinema screen. You know, you'd sit and you'd watch something happen before you. You weren't really taking place. Pseudo-modernism, meta-modernism, this replacement, defines the real implicitly as myself interacting. Engaged, involved with. Whatever I do, whatever I make, that is reality. He says, in place of the neurosis of modernism and the narcissism of postmodernism, pseudo-modernism takes the world away by creating a new, weightless nowhere of silent autism. This is why I don't read philosophy now. But he explains. He says, you click, you punch the keys, you are involved, engulfed, and deciding. You are the text. There is no one else. There is no author. There is nowhere else. There is no other time or place. Therefore, you are free. In a twisted sense, you are the text. The text itself is superseded. Now you can think through all the weirdness of philosophy. I think you take one good philosophy in class in college and it will confuse you for years. But I read that, and I, I studied more on this. I don't have time to go into this morning, but thinking about metamodernism, pseudo-modernism, you know, the reality is that's terrifying. We are living in a culture now that has sunk below the self-centeredness of postmodernism. It's deeper than that. It's, it is all this internal thing. No certainty beyond the self and the immediate moment. No assurance beyond the post or the click or the swipe. And I think it's beautiful because, my friends, listen, this is the generation into which we have been called to speak truth. We have something solid to give. We have absolutes in a culture that doesn't buy absolutes. In fact, it's not just relative truth anymore. It's no truth. There is no tangible truth in this culture. Previously it was, there's your truth and my truth. That's relative truth. Now, there is no truth. Guess what we put on? The first implement, the belt of truth. We now gird up our loins with the truth. The absolute truth of God in Christ Jesus. And by the way, that truth is immersive. It is immediate. It is interactive. It is intimate. It speaks directly to the culture in which we live. It counters with what is real, that which is counterfeit. You know, I'll I'll point this out. I'm not going to do this this morning. I don't have time for it, but you need to hear this. Every single one of these armaments, there's a counterfeit for it. Every single thing that God does that is true and holy and right and absolute, Satan has a weak, pathetic counterfeit that cannot stand up against what is right and true. But it can confuse, and it can concern, and it can intimidate. But it's not real. This is real. Absolute truth. And the truth is, you are not the text. And the truth is, there is an author who wrote the text. Both the biblical text, but also the text of history. Just one. Paul said back in Ephesians 4.17, Walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. There's your pseudo-modernism. It's pseudo-antiquity. I mean, back in those days, it was futile. 
Mankind still thinks with futility, though we have the absolute truth. Paul says in Ephesians 4.20, You did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. Truth. I mean, you can sink your teeth into the truth of God. You can stand on the truth of God because Jesus is the truth and He is our foundation. He's solid. John 8.31 If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And I think about people in this world living with the uncertainty of karma. What is that? Rather than the certainty of God's divine truth. Jesus said in John 14.6 I am the truth. So gird up the belt of truth. We have the truth in the Lord. Secondly, secondly, he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We might call it the flakjack. We might say the body armor of righteousness. And remember, this is God's armor. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness like a breastplate. So now when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, this is the righteousness of God we're talking about. This is not the righteousness of you. It's not the righteousness of me. It's not the righteousness of Marge. And I love Marge. And I see you in the back out of the corner of my eye, Marge, and I'm calling you out because because I respect Marge Kimball so much. But it is not her righteousness that will save her. And Marge knows that better than anybody else. It is the righteousness of God. You find the most righteous among us. And their righteousness is not their own. It is the righteousness of God. It is His breastplate. He put it on. It is essential for us now to wear it. Why? Because it is vital protection for the vital organs. That's why of all of the armor that was worn by a Roman, the breastplate was the one made of iron or of metal. Everything else was made of leather or or wood or, or different things, but man, that breastplate, you wanted to protect the heart. You wanted to protect the organs that gave you or allowed you to continue living. And what I think the Word is saying here is that righteousness protects the heart. God's righteousness protects the spirit. The heart being the spirit, the picture of of spirit in a person. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He said, thank God for experiences, but do not rely on them. You do not put on the breastplate of experiences. You put on the breastplate of His righteousness. Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us way back then, That Abram believed the Lord, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. All Abraham did was believe, trust in the Lord. Read Abraham's life, study his story. He was not a righteous man, and yet he's called the father of all righteousness. Why? Because he was given the breastplate of righteousness from God. Because God credited him as being righteous because he simply believed. And this is what the Lord does. You want the breastplate of righteousness? Believe in the Lord. Trust in Jesus. And His righteousness is transferred to your 
body. Your protection. Romans chapter 3 verse 21, Paul said, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness through faith will protect the heart. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. I love this. Jesus Christ the righteous, John calls him. Because Jesus is the righteousness of God. The breastplate of His righteousness protects, listen, against the death blow of the enemy. That's why righteousness protects the heart. Because in Jesus Christ the righteous, my spirit is protected eternally. What are you saying? I'm saying I can't die. I'm saying though my body may die, my spirit will live forever in Jesus. So the breastplate saves my life, protects me, guarantees, assures my salvation in Jesus Christ. Interesting, practically speaking, the belt and the breastplate work together. One uh, scholar said that the divine realities of the belt and the breastplate become ethical qualities in us. Meaning? Meaning because God surrounds me with His belt of truth, I can walk in the light. I can walk with openness and honesty and confession. I can confess my sins to you. Why? Because I'm I'm surrounded by the belt of truth. I can be honest. I've got nothing to hide. I've already been saved. I have the truth of God. The declaration of salvation. I know where I'm going. I know that He loves me. I know I'm forgiven. I wear the belt of truth and I can walk in the light as He is in the light. 1 John 1.7 And because He protects me with His breastplate of righteousness, practically speaking, I can begin to imitate Him. I can be righteous. Oh, not because I am righteous. But I can start to pursue righteousness and practice righteousness because He is righteous. Ephesians 5.1 Be imitators of God, Paul said. Or as Peter put it in 1 Peter 1.15 Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Listen, that's what the breastplate does. When I wear the righteousness of God, I can practice holiness. And it's not being arrogant and it's not being prideful. No, I can practice holiness. I can act holy. I can seek holiness. I get so frustrated sometimes in the church and I myself am guilty of this. But when we sink into our sin, the oh, woe is me. I'll tell you what, the breastplate of righteousness does away with the woe is me Christian. I just can't help myself. I've done it again. Woe is me. Put on the breastplate, man. Look in the mirror and recognize you have been made righteous. And since you are made righteous, act like it. It's not that your attempts at righteousness keep that breastplate on. No, God keeps it on. But you practice it. Verse 15. He says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I love this. Gospel-ready combat boots. Put them on, man. 
Three times in this chapter, we noted on Wednesday night that Paul says, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. Here's how you do it. Good news makes good shoes. You want to stand strong in the Lord. Good news makes good shoes. You put on the gospel-ready combat boots. Jesus people, let me ask you, are your shoes on? Are you ready to go? Hayden and, and Levi over at the house the other night went out to take the trash out for us. To, we have a long driveway, and so they went hauling the trash down to the end of the driveway, hauled it back in. And I'm in the kitchen getting some juice. It's about 10 o'clock at night. They come rolling in the front door. And Hayden's barefoot. He just, Hayden just doesn't like shoes. Neither does Honor Marie, but I think it's two different reasons. They're just not shoe people. He's barefoot. I'm like, did you just walk all the way down to the end of the driveway and back in your bare feet? He's like, no. (laughs) And I'm thinking, if Jesus were to stop me in the street today and say, have you just come all this way in your bare feet? What would I say? No. (laughs) Put on the gospel combat boots. Wear the shoes of the gospel of peace. Are you wearing that? Can you run with that? Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. He's not saying, know every scripture that's ever been written. He's not saying, be ready to to be able to exegete a passage. He's saying, know the gospel. Know your hope. Can you explain to someone why you got up and came to first service this morning? Can you give explanation for why you didn't just sleep in on a Sunday morning? Can you explain why you keep coming back to church Or why you gather with other Christians? Or why you open up this book? Or why you believe in God at all? Can you explain that? Gospel-ready combat boots. The Gospel is so simple. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and mine. He resurrected on the third day. And now He lives forever making intercession for the saints. And you don't even have to add the last part. Jesus died and rose for me. And I'm going to rise because of Him. There's the Gospel. Can you wear those boots? Do you have them on? Paul is also borrowing here when he mentions the the shoes having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He's drawing again off of Isaiah. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. I long for this church fellowship to have the most beautiful feet on Whidbey Island. People bringing the gospel. Our feet shod with the gospel of peace. Isn't that ironic? Going to battle with the gospel of peace. And that's the point. That is the whole issue. The gospel is peace. He Himself, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, He Himself is our peace. I think it says 614 up there. If it does, it's wrong. It's chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 17. He came and preached peace 
to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. What does that tell us? It tells us that our invitation is not to the fight. What? But we're talking about gearing up for battle. I know. But the battle is not the thing. The fight is not the point. The peace is the point. The reason we fight is the point, not the fight itself. I think a good military person would understand that. You're not going into battle just because you love fighting. If you love fighting, you got a problem. If you love peace, then you have something to fight for. Our proclamation is not to some crusade. It is to salvation in the gospel by the gospel of peace. And that was the hard-fought battle on Skull Hill that brings peace. Good news, which makes good shoes. Do you know the gospel of peace? Are your feet shod, ready to go? It even says the preparation. I mean, you're ready in a moment's notice to share the peace of the gospel. Well, get your shoes on because you're not going to get very far without them. Oh, you may take the trash to the end of the driveway. But you're not going to get far for the Lord without your feet shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, the first three arms, as I said, belt, breastplate, and boots. These are all things to put on. Now, the second three are all things to be taken up. Verse 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the shield of faith. You know, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and you can find this again and again, the image of a shield is used of God. Portrays God, pictures God for the Jewish people. Genesis 15.1, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. Thy exceeding great reward. Psalm 5, verse 12. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Or Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And in part of fighting this spiritual battle is recognizing my shield and my strength is the Lord. My protection is the Lord. We talked about earlier, the strong tower into which we run is the Lord Himself, the name of the Lord. Now, this word shield is thurios in the Greek, but it comes from another word that is thura, and thura, the Greek word thura means door. So thurios literally is compared to a door. The shield that he's talking about here, it's a very descriptive word, is like a door. Taking a door into battle. It was a full-length shield. Oblong with four corners on it. Now in Rome, you may have heard that they would line up and literally they could attach their shields and so they'd be like a wall marching into battle. But even for the singular warrior to hold the thurios, this full-length shield, typically it was made of wood and it was covered over with animal hides. And it was very effective in protecting against arrows, even the sword coming against it, the hide and the wood together would, would block that as you, as you could counter with your sword. But the thing that they began to figure out and do in battle is early on, flaming or fire-tipped arrows were shot at the opposing enemy. And the reason they did this was, well, two reasons. Number one, to ignite the shields. 
Because you've got shields made of animal skins, dried animal skins covering over wood. And if you could get a flaming arrow into one of those shields, the shield itself would ignite. The, the warrior would drop the shield or be trying to put the fire out and then would be exposed to be hit by more flaming arrows. But there was another reason that battles often began with the flaming arrows. And it was to inspire fear. You're going into battle and here through the air come whistling these bright flames. And as the flames grew nearer, as the arrows went through the air, they oxygenated and the fire would grow brighter as it got closer. So it could be terrifying to see this coming at you. Flaming arrows were most effective in causing confusion and or terror on the enemy. So what are the flaming arrows of the evil one? Back in verse 11, Paul described them as the schemes, the methodia, the methods of the devil. His fiery darts, his, his methods of attack, they are to try to get you to drop your shield. And they are to try to intimidate or bring fear, to terrorize you. Is it any wonder that the attacks of Islam in the world are terror? It is a method of the devil. He will fire off subtle whispers. He will imply danger. See, that's how terrorism works, and you all know this. The implied danger, if I walk into a a pub in London, the implied danger is I have to look around because what if this happens to be the night? What if I'm walking across the London Bridge and this is the night that a van plows into us? What if? And so terror is introduced Danger is implied even if it's not imminent. You don't know. Satan uses that. He uses inserted thought patterns. We've talked about that a lot around the bridge. Those things that come to mind. Les calls it second voice. Although I found that sometimes second voice comes first. I don't like that. The inserted thought pattern that, that, that is subtly introduced into your thinking that would undermine your faith in Jesus Christ. Murmured lies. Suggested doubts. You know, I spend so much time on the breastplate of righteousness because one of the murmured lies of the enemy that people, Christians, believe from time to time is that I'm really not righteous. I'm really not so good. I'm really messed up. And so we own sinner rather than saint. And it's one of the murmured lies. Suggested doubts. Satan plays on fear. He knows that human fear oxygenates his fiery arrows as they fly. But of these tactics, the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that no advantage should be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know how he works. I said Wednesday night, he's got a playbook, it's very thin, it's very limited. He has been doing the same thing over and over and over throughout history. When are we going to learn? Do not be ignorant of his schemes. Fear is fed by ignorance. Fear in following after Jesus in the Christian life, fear is fed by ignorance, by the fact that I don't really know what Satan's up to or what he might be doing. The Bible will tell us. God's Word is clear on the subject of the devil and how he works. He's a liar. He's a father of all lies. He's been the deceiver since the beginning. He has come to steal and to kill and destroy. That's all he wants to do. 
And so he whispers these doubts. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I've said in the past, he's like a roaring lion because he makes a lot of noise. But he's not a roaring lion in that he cannot devour you if you're wearing the breastplate of righteousness. If your feet are shod with the gospel of peace. If you are wearing the belt of truth, what can he do? Okay, whatever. And I need not be terrified by him. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 9, Resist him firm in your faith. The shield of faith. The shield of faith. Man, resist the fiery darts of the devil. How does the shield of faith work? I love this. It does not only uh, stop the flaming arrows, it puts them out. It puts them out completely. Faith douses the devil's deceit. Faith in Jesus diffuses the lies. Faith in Jesus, trusting Him. Taking Him at His word. Psalm 56 verse 3, When I am afraid, David writes, I will put my trust in you. That's it. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul said, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And he says in verse 5, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what faith does. Faith in Christ extinguishes the devil's darts. We are not running scared. We are holding up. We have taken up the shield of faith. And faith, you know, John writes in 1 John 5 verse 4, Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Literally translated, it's take the helmet which is salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, Since we are of day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why, why a helmet? And I encourage you to go back through these on your own, study them and ask, why is this given? You know, why the breastplate of righteousness? I think we described that. Why the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace? Why does he use these as, as pictures for each of these more spiritual issues? And the helmet of salvation, think of it as a shield for the soul. A shield for the soul. In the same way that the breastplate of righteousness protects the heart, that is, protects the spirit for eternity. So the helmet of the salvation will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. 
The helmet of salvation guards the soul. What is the soul? It's the seat of intellect and reason and thought. It's where the darts try to get in. But if I've got the helmet of salvation, then my soul understands something. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And I'm protected in my thoughts. In my mind, in my reason, in my understanding, I know I am saved. And so with this helmet on, there's no fear. No darts, no doubts, not even death can rattle the certainty of the helmet of salvation. I love that Jesus says, Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And please understand, we've talked about spirit, soul, and body. That each one of us are triune in our nature. As our Father is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have a soul, the intellect, we have the physical body, and we have the eternal spirit. And that's what makes up what we are. That helmet of salvation is protecting the soul. Don't fear those who are able to kill the soul. Don't fear those who are able to come and attack your thinking and your reasoning and your understanding and your intellect. Don't fear that. And don't even fear those who can kill the body. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You lose your body? Whatever. (laughs) It's just the confidence of Jesus. Hey, don't fear those who can kill you. What? From His perspective, from the eternal perspective, okay, So you kill me and my life here ends. Where do I go? I'm home with Jesus. Man, to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul said. Remember he said, I'm torn between the two. I don't know which one's better. You know? I mean, to live on is better for you all in the flesh. And I I have a work, a job to do. But man, to die and go home to be with Jesus? Yes. Don't fear those who can attack this body. Don't fear those who come at your thinking, your understanding. Man, you got the helmet of salvation. Colossians 1.13, remember this, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Think back to where we started in this marvelous letter of Paul, Ephesians 2.6. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Man, I'll tell you what, the helmet of salvation secures my soul with confidence for every battle I must fight. Because I know every battle is secured to the final victory. Every engagement is leading up to the ultimate victory in Jesus. So we put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and boots that are gospel ready and we take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. We gear up because the battle is real, the fight is on, the struggle is now. And as I began with, we're seeing the spiritual battle flood into the physical world. The lines are getting very thin. Gear up. And gear up knowing that the call home is imminent. What exactly is the struggle that we are called to engage in? 
And what about the sword of the Spirit? And by the way, that's six things. I would add as a seventh, praying in the Spirit. And I believe there's even an eighth, one more absolutely essential element for our holy haversack. We've covered five, and we're going to take the last three on Wednesday night. Because I'm out of time. That's not because I'm trying to force people to come out on a Wednesday night. (laughs) It's really not. It's really not. We have more to get to next Sunday. We're going to open up Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Marvelous. Joyful. It's a wonderful letter. But we're going to finish this on Wednesday night and, and get into it and think it through and process the final issues of this full armor of God. But listen, one last thing before we stop this morning. When God gave you, gave me, the panoply, the full armor, the holy haversack, the entire covering, He left Himself vulnerable. It's almost a picture that you can see one soldier, the great commander, the mighty warrior, taking off His armor and putting it onto you, putting it onto me. And in so doing was vulnerable Himself. It's called the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When He came as a vulnerable baby, He lived in vulnerable flesh. It's the only way that He could offer you, could offer me, His panoplia. And then in the heat of battle at the most critical moment, Jesus Christ was stripped. He was beaten. He was scourged and finally nailed to a wooden cross. And there He died. And you know what's amazing about the crucifixion is nobody saw it coming. Nobody except God. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 This was always known. This was always planned. Before God said, let there be light, Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain. But through this unfathomable, by human reason, battle plan, God has now offered arming of the truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace. He has taught us faith. He has secured our salvation. He gives us voice to speak, to wield His Word. Why? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, something else no one expected was the resurrection. Not even the angels saw that one coming. When Jesus busted out of the tomb and broke the chains of death, and now Ephesians 2.4 says, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's what this is all about. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, but recognize that the spiritual war is spilling into the natural world. And we have got to gear up. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, why not? Why not? He offers everything. And without Him in this pseudo-modernistic world, we've got nothing. That's the choice. The spiritual war will engulf the world. That's guaranteed. 
It will go from bad to worse. Don't wait for it. Come to Jesus today. He'll save you. He will arm you. And ultimately, He's going to take you right out of this world. 